Someone said thank you for the talk about death. For us in the monastery, death is a very big topic. And in the suttas, it's brought up again and again and again. And we like talking about it because for us, death is Dhamma. Death is not something wrong. It's just what happens. Every day, every year, everything that we see around us dies. All the leaves and grasses and flowers, etc. Nature is full of death. Our bodies are full of death. Our minds are full of death. But socially, it's not a good subject. But people go to horror movies. They like to see scary things. So, I think it's important for us to use death and talk about death as a way of reflecting on our own mortality, on the body's mortality, and not identifying, using it as a way not to identify with this body, so that when the body visibly begins to decay and become decrepit, we're not surprised or overwhelmed, upset, and obsessed with doing something to prevent that, because sure, I mean, we can try to keep strong and go to gym classes, but no exercise in the world will prevent this form from disappearing. So we use death, D for Dhamma, E for enlightenment, A for awake, alert, attentive, T for true, and H for home. So death is a road to enlightenment, as long as we pay attention, stay awake, and keep coming back to our true home. Used like that, it's absolute potent medicine to help us wake up. Like to contemplate, oh, how easy it is for the breath, you watch the form of the breath coming in and then going out, coming in and going out. This process over and over happening. And we see how very frail, it's just the wind current. And there's so many ways in which that breath could be disrupted. You have a coughing fit, you can't control it. You have a heart attack, you have to get rushed to hospital. It's, it's about, you lose your ability to breathe. Just the breath itself. Once I experienced that and had to go to emergency, it happened at night in my kuti. You know, nothing is sure. So you, you think, oh, now, this is it, now it's happening. Am I ready? No, not ready. What does ready mean? For me, ready means that the mind is pure, it's purified, and that all my karmic debts have been paid. But there's so much work to be done. So I need more time. May I, may I be able to continue? That's the wish for letting go and giving up renunciation, for waking up to the truth and being able to 
sustain present moment awareness in a way that is complete, equanimous, even, unsullied, unblemished, undisturbed, as we chant it, pure and pure and serene. And may the strength of this body used to cultivate a refuge in that which is authentic, instead of taking most of our time to stir up something in the world that will be pleasing, pleasant. We grasp and cling to it. But we see how unsuccessful that is. Because as soon as the object that we wish for, the experience we wish for, arrives, we don't want it anymore. We're tired and we come to the retreat and, yeah, wait for this for months and months, and then you're here, and it's over, and then what? Life. One of my teachers, Nainte Sairo, a wonderful Burmese Sairo, I really wanted to go on a retreat, this is many years ago, with Ajahn Sumedho, because he took care of nuns. So I wanted to join that community. But Lante said, there's no such thing as retreat. No such thing as retreat. This form of retreats that is practiced now, in ancient times, people didn't do this kind of thing. They would go to a monastery and be a monk or a nun and practice in a forest place in solitude or in a kuti little cabin. But here this stepping in and out can be disruptive because the world floods in. Nature forces us into renunciation even if we don't naturally incline in that direction. So retreat is a form of renunciation. But what if you had to keep doing this forever, like ever, forever? every day, not just for a week. And what if you were giving up dinner every day? And what if you didn't have lots of clothes to choose from, lots of friends to hang out with? You just lived with the people that showed up for the same reason that you did. Then you have to get along with them. That's an incredible renunciation. But with spiritual friends, who will always do their best to look after your well-being in terms of caring for your mind and caring for you, for your well-being. But the world trades on money, the energy of money, of economic success, fame, power, acquisition of wealth, of people who have power to be friends with. Essentially, when the mind is purified and there's no identification with the body, with the world, with the self, with self-aggrandizement, with possessing, with acquiring, with clinging, with caring so much how other people view us, think of us, we want to look good. But to be good, to 
embodying goodness is a very different kind of economy. And it's based on kindness and virtue. Faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. So those are some of the qualities that a sotapanna perfects. A sotapanna being someone who has entered the stream, stream enter, stream winner. It's the first stage of enlightenment. Those are the most important qualities. So we can check what, what we're developing within us. Do we trust this path? Do we have faith in it? Do we really truly accept and know in the heart that if we continue and practice in this way, we can crack open, we can break through to what we truly are instead of acting according to a training, a socialization that we've assimilated from a culture that is really bereft in many ways, more bereft than ever of spirituality. So moment by moment we're developing those qualities and then we have to learn. And even if we're on retreat for a week, one week of retreat cannot sustain us in the tumult and tribulations of worldly life unless we have a daily practice, a daily dedicated way of turning to the Dhamma. That means dying to the world. That's renouncing with the messages of the world. So to live in the world and not being of the world is such a balance. So when we come here and expect that after three days of meditation, we should have minds that are completely calm, pure, stable, how about enlightened? Where is it? How come? Still all this detritus from life is bursting at the seams. We're bursting with painful memories and difficult challenges in the heart from things that happened, from things we've done, from words that have been said, from life's events, loss of a loved, or our own illness. And so we have to die to that again and again and again. Dying to the kinesis, the defilements in the mind, and looking through the cracks. We've already, just by coming here, we've already perforated the lining. And we know that there's, in the depths, there is more that we can pull forth and thrive on, thrive, flourish. Whereas what the world has to offer us, the thriving is really superficial. It doesn't last. You can eat the most organic and pure food, uncontaminated, unadulterated, uncompromised by chemicals and flavors and all that, but that doesn't purify the mind. If only we could focus that much on what we put into the mind, then 
focus on the body is very, very out of balance. And in some cases there seems to be an ethical component, a belief that living that way is the most nonviolent way to live and the most ethical way to live. But some of the violent people of this world have been vegetarians. What good did that do them? Really, we have to take these things and consider them. I'm not promoting eating meat or non-eating meat. I'm promoting nourishing the mind with virtue. Is we have to investigate very deeply what is coming up in the heart and be honest about it. Not, not suppress it. Unless it's just totally overwhelming. Then temporarily, until we can gain our balance again, protect ourselves a little bit and start again. Until we have the strength, enough of a container, enough stillness, enough samadhi, enough mindfulness to hold that energy without losing our minds, our mindfulness. So we have to um, carefully assess what, what our suffering is. Assess it. Call it by its true name. See what what is the illness in the mind and what is the illness in the body and how much we put the second arrow in. The second arrow is our opinion. An opinion is, I hate it, I like it, it's good, it's great, it's horrible, it's bearable. Those are opinions and judgments. Usually, we can endure much more than we know. And sometimes that's not good for us. So we have to know our limits, know our boundaries. And the same is true with what we enjoy and what's, what feels nourishing. Sometimes we eat too much and we get sick. So eating too much and seeing the effect of that and seeing the causes. Why are we going into that kind of habitual activity? Not just with eating, but with entertainment, indulgence in any kind of sense gratification. We learn, we develop these bad habits. And those habits cause us a lot of suffering. So we have to disengage little by little, just as children learn to do things and then to keep doing them. As adults, we can stop doing those things and learn to stop doing them. If we know we should stop, it may take a while before we actually do. So then we need incredible patience. This patience has to be of a heroic nature. If we, we notice that we're being impatient, that's a blemish. That's something that we can write, we can balance just in that moment. We can see impatience in the mind or agitation. Is to bring in a balance to that. To notice the object that we're clinging or grasping for 
and to let go, to bring up renunciation with that. To bring up these paramis in the moment, to reach for the very tools the Buddha gives us so that we can renounce again and again that which doesn't sustain waking up, that which doesn't bring us home, that which doesn't sustain the paramis, it doesn't develop the qualities of a suttapana for us. It just makes us maybe successful in the world, but maybe not happy. Looks good, but inside there's darkness, there's tribulation, there's not happy, not really at home, restless, cold, feeling dull, uninspired. To be uninspired at a time when this dhamma is so available and we've practiced it, and we have some understanding of how to practice, we must continue to listen to teachings, to be with spiritual friends, to bring up these sustaining factors in the heart which bring us to an inspiring and inspirational point so that our faith is nurtured. We might not be inspired by our own practice, but a spiritual friend or an elder, a teacher, comes along and says, yes, you can do it. Yes, this is doable. We read about the saints of the Buddha's time or the saints of other times too. There are many kinds of great beings that have lived over the centuries in different traditions. I like to read the conversations of Brother Lawrence. He used to be the cook of a French Christian monastery. Later when he got old, he used to make their shoes. But Brother Lawrence embodied love so completely, and he was the most joyful being in the monastery, and all the monks revered him. In fact, the monks were so inspired by him that even though he came in as a cook, they eventually made him a monk. Even in his conversations down through the ages, I'm so inspired here and now. Brother Lawrence, my brother, who was this person? I don't even need to name him. Just of that being who opened his heart so much that the luminous treasure the light of Dhamma, of truth, could shine. And that happens reading the Buddha's teachings all the time. But it's not reserved for any river of practice. Certain ingredients have to be there. And the Buddha was the most skilled map maker. He gave us a map. You look at this map and then find out where you are in it and you you keep going, you keep practicing, and you crack open the egg, and the little chick comes out. It's free. It's a freedom. We're all yearning for that freedom. But we have to give up. You know, we're carrying this heavy load of many distortions from life, impacts. We've been hit, we've been pockmarked with life. We have scabs and wounds. But under that is the belief in the self. And it's the self that holds all that. 
what we contrive. We are the architects of this beast that holds all these impressions and makes a meal out of them day by day. The tightness, the bentness, the dis-ease, the unease within us. And someone asked, how do you find this ease? You find it by straightening out, by sitting up, by shining the light from within and knowing the truth of what you are. You start little by little letting go what we've been holding so tight because we see this is not me. This is not who I am. No. We say, no, not me, not mine. So we open, we open the windows. It starts to be more airy in the heart. We bring in the metta, forgiveness and loving kindness for ourselves, for our suffering. We all suffer like this in different degrees, in different shapes, ways, it doesn't matter. The Buddha named it, it's dukkha. And then we understand what that means by feeling it. Wow, this is dukkha. But not me, not mine. And it is impermanent. And we can let it go. We can let it go little by little by waking up to the truth here. The light, the shiny light within. That's what we're doing here. We just ask, how? How do I do this? What, what are the means? What is the way forward? Until we learn enough to know. Just keep going. Just keep chipping away. Keep sculpting. You know, a sculptor works with the wood, knows a good piece when he finds it or she finds it, and has to remove a lot of gross pieces before you can see anything beautiful. And then suddenly a face emerges. And it's the face of the Dhamma. Slowly sculpting away all the dross of life to refine ourselves like jewels, like gold. It's one of the metaphors the Buddha uses. The refining of gold. It has to be heated up a lot till it's flexible enough. So if we're in a rush, no way. If we have expectations, it's going to be like this and like that. These fear, we're scared, what's going to happen? These are the things that work against us. We have to come humbly. We have to come leaving our bundle of dukkha at the door, if we can, as much as possible. Or little by little as we discover it, ah, I don't need that. And it comes back. But eventually, when the heart is mature enough and the samadhi is deep enough, steadfast enough, then the insights will also mature and they will be sustainable. They'll be resilient. And then we we become transformed from within. There's no going back that. Once you come into the stream, but right now we just have one toe, maybe, or a foot. We're scared. Scary to die. Scary to die to what we know and to go into the unknown to receive 
the polish, the light of the Dhamma. But it's the only way to freedom.